Hello and welcome to The Production Pod. A place where we meet and talk all things creative production from TV broadcast, commercial and film. A place where we unite with industry professionals. I'm Craig Reeves and have worked in the world of post-production since being introduced to the industry since 2006 and has since played a role building a virtual post-production facility named Pickled. You are obviously listening to this via a platform, but please let me make you aware of other channels. Uh, The production pod is available as a video cast series over on Facebook. We are on YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Spotify, Uh, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts as well. You can simply find us by searching for the production pod. Today, we are chatting with Anthony Brownmore, co-founder of London's Blue Spill, specializing in post-production and title design for film and TV. Anthony, Hello. Hello, Craig. <laughs> How you doing, mate? You all right? I'm all right. I'm all right. Apart from sweltering, I'm surviving. Weather is hot. Weather is hot today. Uh, so, Anthony, we know one another from, um, which is the beginning of a lot of these podcasts. I know a lot of people from Ragdoll, so <laughs> I need to start interviewing people that I don't know from Ragdoll. But, Anthony, <laughs> I do know you from Ragdoll. I mean, you can make something up if you like. I could have met you in Tesco. I met you in Tesco one day. We were both buying yeah, frozen peas same. and we, yeah, the petit pois was um, <laughs> the connecting <laughs> force. Um, yeah, I'd gone to uh, college, the same college you had gone to. I then went to university, which you didn't go to university. And then I got my first job and you were about two and a half, maybe three, can't remember how many years ahead of me. And I was like, I recognize you. You went to my college. And you're like, now you're like, what? You're heading up this department? Like, what's going on? <laughs> it's really strange. Well, that's well, that's because you 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 stayed at the college, Craig, and I left out the back door. But I don't I don't remember you at the college. What course were you on at college? I was doing. I was on the BTEC National Diploma in Media Production. I think were you the HND or did you do the BTEC? I was on the A level. Oh, you did the A level. Uh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, we well, know each other from a. We knew each other from a, before that because I think you used to work with my friend Neil, and we're both living yes. in Stratford. So we kind yes. of That's small right. town. He used to work at Stratford Leisure Centre, did he not? Probably did cross the Petit Poire Isle many times. <laughs> oh, there you go. There's the link. Uh, yeah, um, I do. Um, I do remember you coming in. I seem to remember seeing you before Ragdoll or knowing about you, hmm. and then uh, then yeah, you coming into Ragdoll, and you came in on. Uh, in the night garden, didn't you? You came in as a onset, uh, yeah. I'd say assistant, dog's body, circle holder, whatever, whatever your it job was. It was a runner was. that kind of got embellished to be circle holder. I used to have to hold these circles that were like different sizes, and they'd line the cameras up so that the one meter and the fifty centimeter circles would match, and then therefore the one meter size character would be the same size as the fifty centimeter character in. I no, mean, they really, that, yeah. Hang on. That was, way more genius. <laughs> that was way more genius than all the measurements we were doing. So we get the calculations and have to double the height of the camera, double the distance of the camera, and then you just walk in with your circle and just go, just line this up. Yeah, that, that was it. It was, it was because all the characters were obviously one scale, all the same, and then we needed like Macapaca, for example, to be half the size. So we would line the cameras up to the circle so they matched, and one would be half the size of the other, wasn't it? And, and the same with the Tomley Blues that I think were two thirds or a third smaller. Not yes, yeah, sure. two, annoyingly two thirds smaller. I think it was a long time yeah. ago, or a third smaller. I can't yeah. remember the math. But genius, genius idea. Um, I mean, I um, came in. Yeah, all of this was really in play, um, and I, like I was the dog's body for yourself and Lee. Um, more so, Lee, because um, I was on well, set. You with were him. out on. You were out on the set with Lee, and I was stuck in the. Um, I was stuck in the studio with yeah. with machines. 
Yeah. You were back at base and chilling, and me and Lee were <laughs> in, so the, chill, in the rain. Bloody hot. <laughs> yeah. air conditioning, like rattled yeah. the walls. I remember that. Yeah, good days. Good days. Yeah. Lee was the VFX supervisor, by the way, just for anybody listening. Um, Lee Phillips. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so well, you'd you'd obviously quit college. Uh, what, what what happened there? How did that come about? Well, it was difficult Why? to hold down a job and stay at college at the same time. They kind of got wise <laughs> to each other. So I had to, it was one or the other. Uh, no, what happened was I actually, I went in for an interview at Ragdoll while I was still at college. So I think I was halfway through, no, 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 I was near the end of my first year of college or my first term, whatever you call it. I can't remember. It's been so long. And I had, uh, my, my mother actually was working at Ragdoll in the um what was the department children's resources something children's like that. responses children's responses that's the one thank you yeah. um, they would take content so you, show it to children and then get their response from it and then use that to research and develop the shows that's right it's a very very important part of the whole process <laughs> so she was working there and at that time i was i was i was into editing and that, that was why i did media at college i was kind of i was into I was into the effects and I was into, you know, how you cut things. How do you film stuff, get it off that tape, put it into something else, chop it all up and then put it back out to another tape. That process was back in, you know, early 2000s. That was fairly difficult to figure out how that was done. Mm. So I was... You I was couldn't do it on your mobile phone like you can now with certain things, you know. You could barely play Snake on your mobile phone, yeah. let alone it, uh, bloody video. The idea of putting that. a graphic over a picture was... Um, was fairly new back then. <laughs> you, had, you, had the, you had the title tool on your VHS camcorder and that was about as graphic as it got. Or you filmed something on Perspex over the top. Proper, proper days. Anyway, I remember uh, my mum going to Lynn Hawkins, who was the head of editing services at that time and still is a Brackdoll, and said, oh, my son's really into editing and stuff. And she goes, oh, well, um, get him in for work experience. Unbeknownst to me at this time, I'd already applied for the job. And I went in for the interview for the job with Lynn and Lee, which they very kindly turned me down on. But then uh, my mum had a word in their ear and they came back and offered me work experience instead. So instead of getting paid for the job, I got to do it for free. So that was fun. Uh, went in, did six weeks of that, and then a week on the studio floor as a runner. Um, and after that time, they offered me the job. So I then did have to quit college. So I think it was during my first week back in term two of college. And was that an easy that decision? I, I left. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It was very, it was very easy for me because I mean, for me, I'm very like focused and very headstrong about, I want to learn this and I want to know how that's done. And if I can see a place that's doing exactly that, and I want to hone in on that, I'll go there. It doesn't matter if it's an educational facility or if it's actually a facility. Mm. But I saw the path in with Ragdoll and knowing what I wanted to know as the right decision for me. Um, and I was supported every step of the way with it. And um, touch wood so far, turned out to be the right move. We did very well. I mean, in the fact that I suppose it was quite a smallish department when uh, you joined. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes, it was very, it was very much a family. There was only like a few of us. I mean, I think there was five of us in the department then, mm. I think. And you had a lot um, of room to, I suppose, learn new things, grow with the company as the projects are getting bigger. 
Oh yeah, I mean all the opportunities were there, and we were small enough that if you wanted, if you well, you were made to muck in and help out, then that's what you did. You could actually get on the show. You could do a bit. I mean, I remember one of my first jobs being given um, a Teletubbies compilation VHS to edit together. And for you know, for me coming from college, wanting to get into TV and stuff like this, and now suddenly I'm doing an internationally recognised brand, and you're putting the video out. Hmm. That's like being a rock star when you're 17. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually going to be seen by people, which is the yeah. The goal. It's like, hey, someone's going to watch this, <laughs> not just my tutor who's going to give me a B. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what what was the first? Um, well, Teletubbies uh, was your first project with with Ragdoll, or did you come in in the early days of Night Guard? No. No, technically, my first program that I worked on was Boobar, which I don't know how many people remember, but it was an IT, it was a CITV program uh, with a lot of multicolored uh, things, space <laughs> creatures. Characters. They, were. they lived in these pods, so multicolored space creatures. But it was a dance and move exercise program, so they would do dances, and then you would have a little story, and then it would be the end. Um, and I got involved in that. And in fact, when I was working in work experience at Ragdoll, they were developing that program. And then I got to see it through to filming and completion. So that was that was quite a good ride for my for my first project. And how many how many years were you at Ragdoll? For? Well, it seemed it seemed like I was there for a lifetime, but I think I worked it out it was only about six, maybe six, six and, and a half years. Six and a half years. That's still. I mean, it's a long time in today's standards because people will have a job for a year, two years, move on after that. Or, the, or they'd simply their yeah. employment isn't for that long because of the, the, the company they work for. There's very few, I think, places that keep people on for that long, longer, longer time. Well, I guess it all depends on you as well, because there's, to stay in a place for that long, there's got to be a lot of opportunities for growth because there's only so long you can sit doing the one part of that job, unless you're really involved with something. And the good thing about you know, where we were in those days is that Ragdoll was that kind of place where you could get involved in a lot of the different parts of the job. I mean, I'd been out like I'd been out with the um, with the children filming their responses to stuff. I'd been on set doing the filming. I'd You know, I'd been doing the edit. We'd come in on afternoons to do the grading when we weren't supposed to, you know, just to make things look better. Mm. All those kind of things you could do because that was the kind of place it was, which I think is why I stayed there for six years mm. because... And you had a pair of keys just, so you could go in and stay late and lock up and come in will, you know, to improve you, on things. As you frequently did, as mm. you frequently did. I mean, it was one of those places that you got out of it what you put into it. And I think that's what I was looking for then. It was like, it was a real opportunity to like, if you wanted to sink your teeth in and really get into it. I mean, it set me up with all the knowledge that I have now, mm. even to this day, still from there. So over those six years, what would you say the most challenging part of your job was uh if i was to go for an, an ultimate challenge it's a program and it's in the night garden that's the ultimate that was the ultimate check we used to call it ben-hur for three-year-olds <laughs> because no i mean today there's not much material out there and obviously there's stuff we can't say and, and but there's there's no real making of that show when there really really should have been yeah there was no other you know, teams it, was there like recording anything behind the scenes or what have you no, there was because, and you could understand it from where Ragdoll had come from, like with Teletubbies and everything, that they were being, you know, cards close to their chest mm. with the production of their next show. But in terms of technically advanced for the time and what we were attempting to do for a children's TV program on a HD channel that didn't exist at the time when we started it, there was a lot of, a lot of risks, a lot of 
you know, learning as you were doing it. Because mm. um, in the Night Garden was the first HD children's program, wasn't it, for the BBC? Or was it, it was. wasn't the yeah. first BBC no, HD program? I, I, I need to fact check that, but I do believe it's one of the first BBC HD shows that was made because it was sitting on a shelf on HD cam before BBC HD was even launched. Yeah. So good decision to go HD. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a bit. And the biggest challenges that came out of that obviously were technical. The machines could just about cope with HD. Um, it couldn't really cope that well with HD sped up 300% and then, you know, interlaced and then four layers keyed over the top of each other. It, it started to struggle a little bit then. Uh, but even the on-set challenges, and as you've mentioned before, our, uh, you know, our colleague in crime, Lee Phillips, you've got to give every hat off to him for the stuff that he pulled out of the bag for how to actually make that show work, technically. It was stressful, and I think like he had the whole weight of VFX on his shoulders when he was on that set, and yeah. just all of these devices that kind of you know, he'd come up with, like how to make the scaling work. And I do remember key tests where we went to um, TX in London and we sat there for an afternoon trying every coloured chroma key under the sun to see which combinations would work best with which characters. And we ended up coming away with the fact that blue screen was going to work the best for most of them, which is why the blue boards were everywhere. He, he, trying to key Iggle Piggle, the bluest character known to man, against a blue screen, <laughs> that's my biggest challenge. Yeah. But then everyone used to say that we're using HD Cam SR and it had all the data you needed and it should just pick like that. I mean, like that, maybe not, but like that just about. And then coming yeah, in on the I weekends. It, <laughs> that and a bit of a weekend. Color back in. But I mean, it, yeah, it did work in the end and we did it. And there's still, I mean, there's a lot of night guard and you look at it and you go, why are they that size? And you ignore the question. And then you look at other bits of night guard and I've had arguments with, uh, and, you know, playful arguments with Dirk, the director, about which section of it is blue screen and which section isn't. Yeah. There are bits of it you don't know. Yeah. Um, you will know the bits that are because obviously that can't happen. Mm. But there's other bits where they're just all together. That you would never know. And, and of course, the tail end of shooting when the summer was coming to a close and the nights were drawing in, um, they were picking up episodes using um, another studio, an, in, an interior studio, rather than using the, the main set. I think the set needed to be deconstructed. So they'd shot um, a lot of the um, action against um, Blue, just a couple of studios down from Ragdoll. And, and then we all, all of the work at that point is then composited because there's no live that's that's right pieces. i mean we we'd, we'd we'd run out of year yeah i mean there's only so long you can shoot in the midlands and so it's uh yeah it was, there was a real time limit on it and you get to the end and you're like well we need all these extra bits put in so you've got no choice but to go digital uh, i remember motion control cameras um i should actually say uh, what your job was at this point um for um runner you're working on um, a bit of software called the flint auto which is an autodesk flint which is now um classified as a flame i, I suppose um arguably um well back in the day autodesk used to split all of their software packages up into bits i was used to acquaint them to like boxes of milk tray with all the nice ones taken out that's how they used to do their software back then so you had flint flame fire inferno uh toxic combustion you had all this like range of them and all of them just had different nodes inside of them but yeah um primarily we were flint flint and smoke 
with the, t with the two that we ran. But I was, I was running the Flint because that was the one that was going to do the most heavy duty lifting on the visual effects side. Mm. Yeah, and then that was mm. that was supplying the smokes, which were timeline based to to do the online, putting all the shots together, and that's that's right because that's that's back before the days when we were allowed multi layer timelines, which you know, now seems like just it's just a given thing. I mean, free software has multi layer timelines, but back then the bee's knees of compositing software could you could only have one track. Mad times, but now you're expected to do more than one person's job, <laughs> so it's kind of well. Yeah, it is the one man band now, isn't it? It's like a whole post production suite inside one machine, and you've got to do everything. I mean, we we put our own nails in our caskets by asking for all this stuff, and now here it is, and you're like, well, you used to have the justified excuse of like, can't do that, mate. See, in post production, we used to have the teeth dry like builders, but we don't anymore. You can't go. Sorry, mate. Can't do that. It's like, oh, I can actually. Yeah. I suppose now you're expected right. to work timeline, work VFX, and um, I suppose jump in and out of different software packages, like, for example, Autodesk, but also Adobe um, are the two that get used quite a lot together. Um, yeah. I mean, you've got, I mean, I remember back to the days of the creative suite coming about and being a thing. Um but now you've got you've got so much in one package there. I mean, you've got like the highest end photo editing equipment. You've got a very competent editor, and you've got a great compositing and motion graphics package. That's uh, you know that's a very appealing set. I mean, I, I would have killed for that back in the days when I was trying to learn all this stuff and I was running off free demo softwares that I'd found attached to a magazine somewhere about editing because you know, try and download anything bigger than five meg from the internet back in 2001. And, and that was it. You were there for a day. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the choice, the choice that's out there now is just, it's just, so it's a little bit overwhelming, I think, for people coming into the industry of how much there is like, well, what do I focus on? What do I do? And that, I think that's kind of the key to it for me is like focus, focus your skills, because with your I always say like, I hate to use the phrase like you can do it on your laptop, but you can. And if you are going to be able to do everything on your laptop, try and focus on where your heart lies or what you actually want to do. Get good at that, then have the rest of it as kind of like a support network. You're like, well, I can do this, but I want to do that. You know what I mean? Because that's the only way you can really focus any kind of skill set. Because if you, you know, you see the, you see the one man bands out on the street collecting money you know he's got the drums on the back he's got the harmonica in the mouth he's got the cymbals on the hands and he looks fantastic and he's a spectacle and he's great and you you give him a quid and that's amazing when was the last time you bought an album by one man yeah. <laughs> ed sheeran could we argue <laughs> maybe but that's that's kind of like how i think of it in the industry now it's like that you can do everything and i think um I mean, the problem that we had back in the early days um, of our careers is that you'd have lots of different software packages, all very expensive as well, all separately packaged, and each oh, prohibitively so. And each yeah. one would have we'd have to bring something out of one into the other. And now there's a lot more connectivity and uh, uh, like a lot more fluid workflows between these systems. I mean, 
being able to open a Premiere project with an edit, bring it in and out of After Effects, and you, and then go back into After Effects, and make an adjustment, and it's all connected that way. Um, you know, the same with the way the Flame uh, is working. In fact, that you can now swap media around and um, you know use the timeline within the system. You're not having to go to another software package to bring it back in. I think you're right. I mean, it has become a lot easier now that everything kind of talks to each other. But that being said, as well, because you in the industry, they always seem to fix one bit and then break the future. So it's like, right, okay, this bit now works, but we've all moved on. We're over here now. So when you've just about got HD rendering happening like lightning, everyone's doing 4K. You're like, for God's sake, now we've got to make that work. I can't even play it back. And that's that's how it goes. I mean, something that didn't really exist outside of film when we started, and we certainly never hit it at Ragdoll in the early days, was color management. That wasn't a thing. There was no such thing as color management. Well, everything was, nothing was log, was it? Like it would be shot today? No. Um, yeah, it was all shot rec. Rec seven oh nine. That was yeah. That was just that's a color space. Yeah, a rec seven oh nine log is a color space. Um, these days, everything would be shot in log and then converted into a rec color space. But um, yeah, no color space yeah. back in those days. But to be fair, missing that part out of that process on that scale um, without needing it was probably a really good choice. <laughs> like, didn't yeah, need not it. having that that part of the because speaking from like where I am now and what we do, um, we do a lot of stuff for Netflix and Amazon and we still do stuff for film and we still do stuff for TV. And everybody, of course, has their own little basket of goodies of what they want. So we made the decision by we, I said, we're probably going to do this. Uh, we made the decision in January to convert all of our workflow to ACES. So the ACES stands for, I believe, the Academy Color Encoding System. I think that's what ACES stands for. And of course, there's loads of flavors of that because you can't just have one, You've got to have lots. So we work in ACES CG. And the reason that we did that is that ACES being one of the newest of the color management pipelines is it's got a wide enough color gamut inside of it that it can contain all of the others. So if we need to get from ACES to anything else, we can, but it's not possible really to go the other way. So if Netflix want our stuff in ACES and we've done it all in rec, you're gonna have a bad time. So you have to make sure, color gamut, by the way, is just like the amount of colors that are available to you. So ACES contains colors in the spectrum that we can't even see. Mm. So that's It's like a one useful. bucket fits all, isn't it? You can yes. put everything in it. Yes. And then you can take whatever you want out of it and you're not compromising anywhere or having to reconvert yeah. things later down the exactly. pipeline. It's a massive bucket and Rex a very small bucket. Mm. And that's where all that kind of data is. And that's what your TV can see and most of your monitors can see but we work in stuff that's much wider just in case because you never know what's coming in the future. Before we get into your current role, <laughs> um, still go we're still in ragdoll days, uh, motion control, yeah. early days of motion control, layering um, all the characters in the show into one big dance. That must have been a bit of a head scratch, right? Yeah. I mean, more than a bit. Uh, I remember there's actually, there's a really cool shot, which I don't think ever made it anywhere but it was a test shoot that we did for the motion control cameras when we were first figuring out the scaling of Night Garden. I don't even think the forest was built. And it was a pan down all the characters. So it would go from Eagle Pickle Upsy Daisy down to Macapaca and the Tomley Boos and all of that. And that was a really, really cool shot. And I thought, oh, if we get more of them in the show, that'll look really good. And then we did the motion control shoot. And we found out why we didn't do a lot of those in the show because the time it took to, to set this all up 
as astronomical. But then once you've programmed in your movements to the camera, you've got to think of it like like doing keyframes in an animation software. You'd program the cameras to do their moves and then the rigs would play it back at whatever speed you set. Because as you quite rightly said before, the characters in Night Garden are all sped up differently. So that meant the motion control rigs on each pass had to move at different speeds. Mm. And the motion control camera um, will repeat the same move over and over again. Technically, it will repeat the same move over and over again. It should do on te- paper. That's what it's built to do. It's built to do the same move over and over and over again. It's The ones that we were using, which was a Milo rig, I believe, um, it wasn't technically built to do the same move over and over again at different speeds. It wasn't technically supposed to be able to do that, but they managed to do it. And yeah, it, it, it was amazing seeing it come together because when we were live on the studio floor, we had rough, uh, I think we had an Ultimat on there so we could roughly see what a few of the layers were gonna look like when they were on top of each other and whether they were slipping around. But we were really like shooting and, you know, Lee had worked out the maths. So Lee knew where it was at and he knew that it was gonna work and faith was in Lee. And then when it came down to the machines and we're there with all these layers of HD, because we think, so you've got, you've got people, Upsy Daisy, Tom Blue Macapaca, Pontopines, and the set. So we were mixing six layers of HD together in a machine that used to crash when you rendered two. So, so we, yeah, it was, it was a, I remember staying there nights upon nights rendering that and then having to get a camera tracker in to build the storybook set that was going in the background. Uh, so that was, yeah, those were massive troubles because the the data, it wasn't, usually now you would have someone that would either match move the shots for you or they would clean up the motion control data to make sure it worked. But we didn't have the time luxury of that kind of stuff. So when the motion control data came in and it was all upside down a different speed and backwards and the camera just flew off into space, we were just like, well, we've got to think of another solution to do this. So we ended up getting camera tracking software and tracking that in. But it's funny, motion control stuff now, it must be just such a different beast. It's been so long since I've seen where it's gone, but back then it was, you know, you were really, you had to be disciplined on what you were shooting. I mean, I've done a motion control shoot and uh, it was a stop frame shoot with a motion control rig um, and yeah, you were lining up five or six plates. You can guarantee that there were frames missing, slightly different mm-hmm. bits were off, and mm-hmm. you would spend a few days yeah. just basically fixing the plates before you actually managed to start comping. But um, it's the slippage. It's the slippage that used yeah. to get me. It's like if something's slightly off on it, one element is slipping over the floor because it looks like it's not in yeah. the right place in space. It has to be dead, that used to- dead locked. So actually, you yeah. you um you were the first person to introduce me to the flame back back then, um, and you spent a lot of time. Um, teaching me, which is very grateful for um, the ways of oh, my fault. batch, yeah, right. uh, batch setups and what have <laughs> you. Um, and eventually, I, I progressed uh, within the company to, um, to to work on on that that gear. Uh, thankfully, actually, because you'd left, <laughs> so thanks. <laughs> um, Dead man's shoes. Yeah, Excellent. you moved. You I moved remember, on. Yeah, but I remember I'm, I made you pay for it before I left though, because I had you rotoscoping Tomlyboos and Macapaka's ass, as I remember. Yeah, because they. That, yeah, there would bubble over the key, so I was like, yeah, Craig will do that. I did do a lot of map making. Uh, I think I spent three days rotoscoping um, a pinky punk window, and um, I think because I'd taken maybe two and a half days more than I should have done, everyone gave me um, a certificate and a bottle of wine. It was very kind of you. <laughs> a little bit of a piss take, but uh, yeah. 
heartwarming memories. That was great. Thanks for that, Matt, by the way. Look great. Anyways, I'm yeah. sure someone probably redid it after I handed it over. <laughs> no, no, no. I started doing it and I went, I haven't got time for this. <laughs> no. You did a great job. Craig. Thank you. Very grateful for the opportunity. Uh, so you, <laughs> so you, you moved on um, and you, were, went, you went freelance and moved down south. Is that right? I did, yes. So after after Ragdoll, I decided to stretch the wings a bit and uh, move to London and try the try the freelance scene, which is quite a like it's a, it's daunting prospect when you've come from a small I say small country town. Stratford is still technically a small country town, and then to think, oh, I'll just go to the bright lights of London. I'll get a job. That'll be fine. Uh, launching into that. Was, was a little bit was a little bit daunting and a little bit different than I thought it would be. There was a lot of afternoons spent in internet cafes researching and trying to find post-production places and firing out emails upon emails and just hoping that there would be a sniff of a job. Um, and what was your first yeah, freelance was, gig? My first freelance gig, uh, it was for a place called uh, H, HMX Media. They did... Um, like in-store kiosk demos for Sony cameras. Okay. And my first my first gig was making this instructional video for a Sony uh, a Sony Happy Snapper camera, uh, putting the footage inside the screen because they had all these lovely CG renders come over from India, very nice, all off the CAD drawings, and I had to track all the screens into the back of them and put all the, the supers and, and all that kind of stuff over it, which was quite different from what I was doing in Ragdoll. I'd gone from like very, very, very intensive compositing work to can you track a screen for two days? Yeah, I can do that. That's okay. Yeah, but I was doing that in After Effects, you see, because the, the thing about Flame and Flint is it's, it is a bit of a, like, you have to have proved yourself on it to get a job on it, you have to have a catalogue of work on it. It's very difficult to just jump into London and say, hey, I want to do this now. And they're like, well, what have you done before? Well, I did all this, but that's not what we're doing. You had to kind oh, of like work okay. at the mill or something like the NPC or wherever that had these, yeah. you know, by the yeah. dozen and work your way up through yeah. the ranks and then then never be able to get anywhere because the person that's at the top of that food chain never leaves because they're on such a good whack <laughs> that you have to leave in order to progress because you're never going to take that They've man's job. They've got themselves written into the contract, yeah, yeah. that they, they can't be dethroned. Yeah. And so, yeah, I started out freelancing on After Effects. I did quite a few jobs of that. I ended up doing another kids' TV show as well called Uncle Max, which, uh, which was good fun. I was on that for a few episodes. And then, uh, then I was just doing odds and sods around London until I got a job doing music videos at Smoke and Mirrors. That was still a freelance job, but I'd ended up then going to like onlineing music videos, which was you know, fairly simple compared to what I'd been on. But that was then on Avid DS. So that was another software package. And you don't get many people like going to Avid DS now. It's either you've learned it in the early 2000s and you can still operate it, but you don't have many people coming up and still doing it. Mm. So I, luckily, when I was at Ragdoll, I'd gone on quite a few editing courses. So I knew how Avid's worked and Avid DS was our online editor on Boobar. So I knew how that system worked. So I could, I could freelance it. So I did that. But then... I got quite a good relationship with the head of Smoke and Mirrors at that time. And she said, oh, we've got a, an in-house position going at CHI and Partners, which is an advertising agency in London. 
And I was like, well, okay, um, I'm not interested. Thanks very much. It's, that's lovely for the offer, but no, thank you. So she got me in for another freelance job and kept on it. She goes like, you need to check out this place. I was like, okay, fine. We'll go and check it out. And then I, I fell in love with the team. I mean, Brett Kelsey, who was heading it at the time, is one of the loveliest men known to man. And he's just, you know, I could feel his enthusiasm for the department. They wanted to grow it. And I was like, ah, I see this now. This is the same thing. They're going to grow. They're going to put new stuff in. There's, there's room for something here. So then I took my first full-time employed job in London uh, as an online editor for this smoke and mirrors offshoot in CHI and partners. Mm. So I'd gone from doing broadcast children's television to very obscure music videos to doing advertising. <laughs> that was quite a path. So now I'm in a completely different mindset <laughs> from where I started. Yeah. Um, yeah. Advertising. Yeah. So it kind of captures everybody in the end, doesn't it? Um, the uh, commercial. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to do this gig, you're going through advertising at some point, <laughs> yeah. especially the world of onlining and, and stuff like that. You, you will get caught. Yeah. Uh, and I think that was kind of the natural thing for the line of like flame and smoke. I mean, when I was doing the advertising gig in CHI, Autodesk did the unthinkable and launched smoke on Mac. Because before then, Smoke, Flame, Flyer, Flint, Inferno were all Linux-based. So that was very prohibitive for even like learning it at home. You couldn't. You and you needed a very Linux expensive box. system to run it as well. You did, yeah. I mean, I remember the first Flint in Ragdoll costing the same as a house. Mm. That you know, with all the drives and everything, you think about what you get now. It's just it's another world. Mm. But that was something I managed to introduce to this CHI and partners. I got them to buy a Smoke on Mac. They had a DS there and we got rid of that and got the smoke on Mac. And I was like, right, mm -hmm. back on the smoke now. I can get I can get my reel up and I can get back yeah. to where I want to be. And and that was it then. I stayed there for three years, heading up I did a lot of I did a lot of adverts that you've seen, sorry. Uh, <laughs> a lot of stuff. <laughs> but then I got to the point where I was like, how long do I want to spend doing stuff that people are going to fast forward? Yeah. You know, it's like the, you've gone from having a job satisfaction of like literally getting letters that people were annoyed that it wasn't on television anymore yeah. to knowing that you're one of those people that people install ad blocker for. Yeah. You know, it's not not a great feeling career wise to go like, oh, I've gone from that to that. Yeah. Uh, OK, maybe I'll think about shifting it. Um, I ended up doing another job uh, for uh, Nice Biscuits doing more music videos there actually. I did a few adverts, but it was more music video based stuff. And I was only there for about eight months, I think, before I decided that I was going back freelance because mm. uh, I just had birth of my first son. So I was like, well, I want to spend time with him and I could probably, I know a bit better now how London works, I could probably freelance a bit. So maybe I'll do that. Um, I did. And then it was only about five months before we set up Bluesville. Yeah, so you set up Blue Spill with your uh, business partner, Alison. Um, Indeed. And yeah, how was it transitioning from freelance to having a company? Because it's not just a case of saying, hey, it's Thursday, I'm a freelancer, go to bed, wake up and say, hey, I've got a company, it's Blue Spill. And by the way, not doing any of that freelance work anymore. I only do project, you know, uh, studio-based stuff now. And it's not that simple, is it? It's, it's not an overnight no. thing. No, it's not simple at all. It's actually, it's really, really hard. And one of the first things you question yourself about is, okay, so I've got this 
like bank of freelance clients, how do I suddenly tell them I'm not coming to them anymore? They have to bring stuff to my place and do it here. And not only that, so your freelance. day rate is this much. A studio rate, I mean, obviously, you, you know, you, the idea is growing the account, growing yes. the business. Uh, trying to explain to somebody that it's not this much anymore. It, it's kind of like this much and, you know, testing the water. Yeah. Yeah. And I would realistically say that that transition and that growth took about two and a half years to go from purely freelance into, right, we're a company now, it now costs more and we're not coming to you. That's kind of the, the, the progression. We, we had, I mean, the, the onus is on Alison for actually making the move and getting the office because at first we were working from home and it was just me and Alison working in our kitchen doing odds and sods for feature documentaries, which was kind of where we'd moved into by then. And then we decided I say we, Alison decided that it was time for us to get out of the kitchen and have a base in Soho, which would help us entice new clients because it would be much easier for them to send us an email and say, hey, we're thinking about doing this kind of thing. We'll say, we're literally down the road from you. Pop on by, have a cup of coffee and let's have a chat about this rather than do you fancy coming around for dinner? That was, a, it was a much easier sell um, for that. And that was absolutely the right decision to do it. So we took on an office let for six months because they were going to demolish it. So the, the risk was small. So we know like, okay, we're six months lease. There's no chance to extend here because this place is going. But if this works, then we can find another place and extend. And it did work and we ended up finding another place. But yeah, that initial period of trying to get clients to understand that we were now a company and not just an individual freelancer and all invoices were coming from a place called Blue Spill that they'd never heard of before. That transition took a while, but weirdly, I think the clients were more on board with it than we initially feared that they would be. I think a lot of that in the early days was us holding back and not wanting to give the impression that we were a company now. And I remember that in the early days, not having much work, I would still freelance some of my old places like CHI and Nice Biscuits and stuff. I would still go out to them and freelance. And in fact, I remember Nice Biscuits being the first ones to actually give us work to actually do at Blue Spill rather than me having to go and use their facility because they were full. So it made sense for them to send stuff out. And that's where I started getting more bold and going like, okay, we can do this because the argument is now that, well, we don't have to take up your suites. You can give us the stuff, we'll work on it, give it you back and it's it's all cushy. And you know it's been done somewhere well because as an initial investment, I purchased Smoke on Mac to be at Blue Spill as well. So for all intents and purposes, we had a high-end finishing suite that you know that we could deliver straight to broadcast, straight to online, whatever, and with relatively fuss, a little fuss to the client. Yeah, yeah. And mm. since you've managed to grow the company, you've worked um, well on feature films, um, VFX, title design. Um, just looking at a list here, you've got Assassin's Creed. Man from Uncle, yeah. a BBC series called Little Drummer Girl, uh, Wonderlust on the BBC, Jonathan Creek. Um, I seem to remember you being a big fan of that actually. And uh... I used to, I used to love Jonathan Creek, and actually I got really excited when I got handed that job. Um, I work a lot with um, a guy uh, called Tamvir Hanif, and he's he's a he's a great guy. He's one of the you know one of the nice guys of the industry. I mean, I'm really good you know really good friends with him. And he has been a friend with me for years. He threw me a bone on a job for ITV. It was for the Scylla biopic. 
And we, had, in fact, I believe you worked with me on it. I did, and this actually <laughs> interconnects with another podcast with who are actually the post production supervisor, um, David O'Brien. He he, we've already um, spoke, uh, and yeah, it's a small industry, right? So yeah, you you um, you brought me in to to help out on on that. Um, yeah, I did. We were we were restructuring an abandoned street in Liverpool. Uh, it's like a famous street, apparently, although I had no idea about it. And it's all boarded up, and it's all graffitied, and it's. It's horrible. And we had to take it back to Liverpool in the 50s, or it was even earlier, probably. Uh, we were removing road markings, putting windows back in buildings, all this kind of jazz, extending the street. Great fun. Um, and then ever since then, Tam's kept me busy with all kinds of fun broadcast work. And this was one that came from him for Jonathan Creek, which actually led to me going to Glasgow for a week and doing on-set supervision, which was, you know, that was great fun, you know, run and gun, having to make the decisions there live on the set. It's just you know, the stuff you can get asked to do. But again, from having that foundation from where I came from with Ragdoll, taking that risk and going like, right, okay, well, I'm going to learn here. And I'm pretty sure that, every, you know, what I can learn from here, I'll be able to use later on. If I hadn't had that path, when I'd come to do the Jonathan Creek job, I wouldn't have been able to do it because I would have had no experience of onset supervision uh, or, the, or the confidence to be able to do it. So I suppose the the moral of that story is, is take the opportunities as they come and, and, you know, go for it. I mean, if you hadn't taken the opportunity in the early days to, to be on set with Ragdoll, then it, you wouldn't have felt more confident when it, when it mattered more, not that you'd have known that at the time, but it mattered more, obviously, when you've got your own company, you're going on set representing your own firm, making it work for the likes of Jonathan Creek. It, it, it all translates over time, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think a lot of that comes from what we said before as well about knowing where you want to go in the industry, having that idea. I mean, there's so much available now just on the internet and out there that you can see every facet of the industry if you're looking for it. It is a dark art. I mean, post-production is a weird world that everything is segmented into so many different sections. But if you have an idea of what you want to do and where you're going for it, and you find a place that you can learn how to grow that, then that's, that's the place to be. It's a bit different from like being in education or being, you know, having the difference between going from college to university, being offered a one week position to edit some guy's, you know, infomercial, having that for one week and deciding to give up your education line for that. That's a little bit different from knowing that you've actually got a career path in front of you there. Because I'd say now, I mean, especially in situations that we're in, the way the industry is, you're more likely to have the short term positions put on you rather than people saying, hey, have an open-ended contract and let's see how you do. That's that's rarer now. So if you get that, leap at that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, so yeah, you've you mentioned about being in Soho and why you've, why you set up in Soho to um, attract clients. Um, you and Al, Alison, um, working um, at the studio there. Um, at some point, though, you obviously needed more hands on deck. So how was it um, employing that first person? And uh, when was the right time or when did you feel like that time was coming? It must have been quite a daunting moment. Um, I mean, it's weird, right? It's like, a, it's like a weird sudden shift in the balance of power because it's coming from freelancers, as we both were when we moved to London, having to scour for jobs and being the ones to send out the emails. And suddenly now we're the ones doing the interviewing. That's a weird, that's a, that's a weird position to, to be in. Um, but, we, you know, that was it. It was... It was a put out calls onto websites like Mandy and now production base and uh, broadcast asking for 
CVs and asking for the freelancers. At first it was, we, were, we wanted freelancers in because uh, the jobs that we were getting were so infrequent that we knew that we could afford people for certain periods of time for certain aspects of the job. But we couldn't commit in any way to having a staff member because in two weeks we might have no work. We don't know. Yeah, you know, we can't we can't plan for that. Well, and so, also, like uh, you know, the business is if you know is based on X amount of shots for one series or um, a title design for one show or you know or a few shots for something. It's never hey, here's like a two year contract with this particular show. So trying to pre- pre- predict how how long the money's coming in for and then what happened, you know, what's coming up next. It's, it's a big, it's a big deal Try, you know, at that point when you think you need to employ someone. I mean, you're right. You use the word predict and guess, and it is. The difference is time. Once you've done it and you've done it for a long time, then you start to see patterns in how people work and you know how these things work in the industry. And soon you become the person that can advise and say, well, actually it usually takes this long and it's going to be that much. And we know now because we've, done that before and it took twice as long as we thought it was that that's what it's going to that's what it's going to take now so when we hired when we got our freelancer the first freelancer that we ever had in was um a guy called joe navasky and uh he's still with us today he was he went from being our first freelancer to when we got the office uh it was actually the brewer street office when we got that we were still just two employees by then we got that and we got one big job and it was a massive job that we knew there was going to be like 60 or 70 sequences in it. And this isn't 60 or 70 shots. This is sequences that could be up to a minute long. So we're like, okay, we know we're doing at least a third, if not two thirds of this film. So we said to Joe, we said, look, you know, we can't, we can't guarantee how long this will last, but we'd like to offer you a job. Come work with us. And the same kind of thing as how I have a approach, like come and grow with us, find out where we go. Let's see what we can all do. And that ended up working really well because Joe came in and he was like, I want to say a third wheel, but that makes us a Robin Reliant. And they're no good. <laughs> I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just another piece of the puzzle that fit together with me and Al. And we ended up, yeah, we ended up steamrolling forward, taking on new jobs. And then it just kept growing and growing and growing. And still growing because now how, how many, well, you, you, it's not just the three of you anymore, is it? It's, it's a, it's a big outfit now. No, well, there's, there's, uh, there was 10 of us at last count, I think, um, working here, there and everywhere because of current situations. But we've gone from, you know, we've gone from being obscure, unknown people in a kitchen to being, you know, we're, we do as much work in America as we do here. And we get a lot of word of mouth emails and stuff comes through. And we, you know, we get lucky enough to be nominated and win awards now, which was always kind of our weird thing like you'd sit around the, the table when you'd half built this studio and you're sitting there having a cup of tea and just going like imagine if this place does well imagine if we like imagine if someone recognizes something we've done imagine if we get an award for something that wall is missing we, some awards we need yeah. some awards on that one. yes <laughs> we need some awards on that. how do we get awards yeah. how do you do that yeah yeah uh, so that's yeah that's interesting so how do you juggle being um obviously a creative person doing a creative role you know with um editing and online and vfx um there's obviously a very technical a- aspect to um the way that things are delivered and not only that you set up the studio which is a technical endeavor um but then you're also a businessman you've set up a business you're say hiring and uh, people and, and managing clients so how do you ju- how do you juggle those three roles 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's probably the hardest part of it because at the heart of it, you know, me and Alison, who are the partners in Blue Spill, we're still, you know, we're still the operators at heart. We're still the creatives. You know, we it, it it's our baby. We we want to make sure that everything looks good and everything's on our shoulders. Um, there comes a time though where you can't do everything and you do have to start letting go. I mean, there's too much to do. So you kind of become the eye of Sauron, you become the overseer and you start trusting in your team and you build a team that you know are going to have the same kind of, you know, standards as you, the same kind of aesthetics. And then you trust in them and you let their creativity go. And suddenly you, you shift about from being just the people who have to run and gun and do the job to the people who are actually kind of crafting something. You're like, OK, this is this is all of our creations now. We're doing this. We'll do that. That's fine. And then you send it off as a team. You're like, right, great. We've all worked on that now. That's good. You know, we're all acknowledged. I mean, just on a slight side note, it took a lot for us to change the credits of stuff. Because at first, when you get credits on TV shows, I mean, you'll know this, Craig, it's a slog to get your first credit on a show. It's mm -hmm. it's a big it's a big thing. And because of where we've come from, how we've done, we make sure that the people that worked on our stuff are credited for it. And we make sure that, you know, even if they've never worked in the industry before, it's like you did work on that. You deserve to be acknowledged for that. You know, make sure you go and add your name on IMDB. Here's your credit block. So changing our credit block from just like either Alison and Anthony to Blue Spill to Blue Spill and then blocks of names under that, that was a big process as well. And again, came with time and, and you know, confidence in like the fact of like, we can ask for this now. I think that's, that's okay. Um, but I mean, in terms of like juggling business and creativity, what you need to do is when you start employing creatives and you're thinking, Hey, I'm, I'm employing a lot of people now that, that do the job that I like doing. Why am I left with the job that I don't like doing? So you need to start bringing people on board that do the jobs you don't like doing as well. So we actually have a great, I mean, it's taken us years to get here. Um, and again, all thanks to Alison for kind of, she's the one that will decide when we're going to make a big business decision. And I'll just either agree with it or I'll grumble and she'll do it anyway. But she, uh, she had the foresight to employ um, two people to run our admin for Blue Spill, uh, which uh, James and Lucy have come in and they now, they organize every kind of asset tracking with the clients. They deal with the scheduling of who's doing what shot per day and how that goes to the clients for review and then feeding those reviews back to the artists, booking those in. Jobs that four years ago, I'd have said, well, they'll have about half an hour's work a week, if that. I mean, how can we justify employing someone for that? It's kind of like, you know when you have a pound's pocket money and you'll spend that pound and then you'll get your pounds pocket money upgrade to two pounds and you still spend it. You don't know what extra you've bought, but it's still gone. That's what it's like staffing up a small business. So like you start adding these people and suddenly they all get absorbed and they'll all got stuff to do. Yeah. Like, but we would do all that. Good. As long as they've like, got value. Like, <laughs> not just, yeah. adding, just adding more people to the, to the roster for just, no reason. Just keep adding, adding more pounds. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's weird. And it's very, it becomes a very organic part of the process of realizing that, you know, if you are working from eight in the morning until 11, 12, one in the morning, which has been known to happen, that's the point where you step back and you go like, 
there's another person's job in here. There's something yeah. going wrong. Someone needs to take some slack from this. So we have. We've built up the team. What would you say has been your, your toughest d- decision in business then? More than, more than taking on staff was taking on office space. That was definitely the scariest thing because suddenly you're, you're in a lease and you've signed up to a year at least of that and you know how much that's going to cost. So there's your overhead right there in front of you. And in like, Soho, right, I imagine that's that. not uh, that's that's not a cheap gig, is it? <laughs> I, I'm not going into numbers, but let's say it's doubled over the six years we've been there. It's doubled the the, the rates and rent on that has all doubled. Uh, the scare, yeah, having that office and knowing that that's your overhead and you need to cover that and anything else you add on top of that is extra. That's scary when you start to see the figures in front of you. But then you have the experience and the, and the knowledge that's like, okay, I know roughly what we're going to earn now. And I know that we'll be able to cover that and that's fine. It gets scary again when you realize that you're getting too big for that office and you need to get another one. And that's, that's the next scalability thing. And you're like, okay, well, I've just finished the cold sweats over the first one. Let's think about how we're going to do the second one. But it comes down to risk and reward. And the whole thing is, you know, business is risks it is like okay you you will project that you're going to have this much work in you don't know what's going to happen to the industry you don't know what productions are going to be doing five months from now but you are going to presume that your your course is going to continue and if you are going to hit a brick wall at the end of that course you need to plan for that i mean a lot of our work came from we know i mean we know a lot of our clients now so we know when big jobs are coming up maybe like three four months in advance, sometimes years. Sometimes we have a conversation with someone in a pub and we know a job is coming and it doesn't arrive for three years, but we know it's coming. So you can plan because of that. And we did when we got, I think it was when we got a a massive job uh, last year, we knew that we needed to hire double the amount of people and get another office. And that's what we did. And we were like, right, that job is gonna pay for that. We know that is gonna be okay for now. We just have to hope we can keep this going yeah sustaining it yeah. Um, and how many years how many years is blue spill now been operating uh, i uh, what was it it was founded in 2013 so whatever that makes it now so six uh, seven years now and you talk about office space and what have you i mean obviously we're, we're in, in come out of lockdown now um but obviously the coronavirus has had a massive effect on um, how people now work and um, particularly in, in the likes of london as well because it's um it was a bit of a hot landscape for the COVID, um, how are you guys, you know, responding to uh, what's happened there? So we we took the steps to shut down about a, about a week before the official lockdown, before everyone went in. Um, we got a little bit itchy knowing that it was around and knowing that people were being exposed left, right, and centre. We were like, okay, let's let's plan for this and let's take the let's take the jump. So we did. We sent everyone home thinking we'd be back in like, when was that? March, April? Yeah, April. We think we'd be back in April. <laughs> that worked out well, didn't it? Yeah. So sent everyone home. We were in the middle of delivering a job for Netflix when it happened. So I loaded up everyone with hard drives of all the jobs and we split it all off. And I made, you know, lots. Of, I'd already made lots of steps in the office to make us be able to remote access stuff. So luckily all of that I could just transfer into everyone's hands and we mm. could all get on. Um, but it was a case of, do you have a machine at home that can cope with the software? If you don't, 
yours is on your desk, take it, we'll arrange for you to be sent home with your machine and mm. you can operate it from there. And everyone's been doing that. And, you know, luckily everyone has had good internet connections because, I mean, we're talking about dealing with like 4K mastered EXR sequences for Netflix and this stuff isn't small. Mm. So we're, you know, banding mm. terabytes of stuff back and forth to each other and overall. Do you, are you itching to get back in you know everyone in the office and working how it was pre-lockdown or do you think there's an opportunity for a bit more flexibility and people working from home and what have you oh i think i think there's definitely like a shift in the tides of like is this possible to have remote setups now which it, it, it definitely is um i am keen to get people back into the office just because when you're when you're in a creative environment and you're all working together to create something it's a lot quicker and more fluid to all be in the same space and, and have that kind of, mm. you know, that dialogue to get it working. So I, I'm keen for that, but also okay. I'm not keen to give anyone a deadly virus. So I'm, <laughs> I'm quite fine with keeping people at home for as long as they feel they need to be at home. Yeah. We have started letting, if people have requested to go back to the office, whether it's, you know, tech inabilities or they just want to be out of their house because they've started bouncing off the walls, then we've said, like, that's, that's fine, you can, you can go in we've prepared PPE stuff to be in the office if you want to use it, you know, that's, that place is, as far as we're concerned, that's, that's safe for you to go back to, but we're not, we're not telling anyone they have to go back. Not yet. What advice uh, would you give your younger self? It's a question that I ask uh, everyone here. Um, but if you're going back. In general, about industry. Um, in the industry, preferably. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if you, you know, maybe you can revisit yourself back when you're making that decision about, you know, leaving college and going to um, work for Ragdoll. What, what advice would you, would you give yourself now? I mean, a lot of it would be validation for him. I mean, he's made some stupid decisions over the course of the years. But in terms of like the, the younger stuff with leaving college, he did the right thing. I was like, I'd, I'd, I'd tell him he did the right thing there. Yeah. Um, but to keep to to keep doing his his personal projects more, I would have said that because that's really what makes you grow is like your your own creative vision, something you want to force through. It's, when you own your own thing later on, most of it is your creative vision and you're pushing it forward. But when you're doing stuff for other people, it's it, it's easy to lose sight of that. Mm. And I would have said keep up your own personal creativity outside of there as well. Don't just do everyone else's stuff. Yeah. That's what I would have said. That's a good, yeah. good, good response. Yeah, good answer. Well, Antti, I suppose we better wrap it up. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your time. I hope that was all Always good. Always a pleasure, Craig. Always a pleasure. <laughs> uh, you can follow Anthony uh, on Twitter, which is at AntBrownX. Um, so be sure to check him out. Um, also uh, check out the Blue Spill uh, website and uh, check out what they're doing as well. But um, until the next time on the production pod, Anthony, thanks again. Um, see you all soon. Bye. Bye. <laughs>